0: Would you pray with me again? Father, we are so grateful that you have spoken to us in your word and ultimately in the living word, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that as we open that written word this morning, that your spirit would be moving and impressing upon us your nature, your character, your holiness. Father, we, we pray that you would continue to form us into the people that you would call us to be. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, I have a slightly embarrassing confession to make. I grew up nearly my whole life in the state of New York, and I have never once been to New York City. Never once. Uh, My dad just hated the city and would never, ever, ever take us there. But there's plenty of... New York State outside of those five boroughs to explore and we did a good bit of that. Uh, We saw wonderful state parks and my favorite place on earth happens to be Letchworth State Park. So if you're ever traveling through New York State and you see a sign for Letchworth make sure you pull off. It's this wonderful gorge, deep deep canyon carved out by a river. Uh, The river actually has a series of, of three waterfalls in it each, well, they're separated by about a mile, half a mile each, and they're gigantic. More water flows over those three falls than flows over Niagara Falls, and it's a lot less of a tourist trap. So it's wonderful. At at the lower of the three falls, there's a great big stone bridge that you can walk out on, and the water is going right under you. The waterfall is going right under you. Right next to that great big stone bridge, there's a rock that kind of juts up out of the river, almost like a thumb. Some people call it cathedral rock. A lot of people call it sugarloaf. It's about a 100, 120 foot tall cliff just jutting out of the river there. If you go down to the base of that rock, sugarloaf rock, there's a sign. It says, do not climb. I really don't know why they bothered. Um, Signs are not a very good deterrent for stupid 22-year-old college guys. I climbed Sugarloaf with three friends. And because there's water at the bottom, you got to jump, right? Actually, I was the only one that, once we got up there, did jump. It was the scariest moment of my life. And it hurt really, really bad when I landed. And then the park ranger showed up. And as I was sitting in the back of the park ranger's SUV and they were writing me a, a ticket for disorderly conduct, I, she was telling me all these stories of people who had jumped off Sugarloaf and had been seriously injured, broken bones, paralyzed, just the summer before someone had died jumping off Sugarloaf Rock. And I remember sitting there thinking, why don't you post that? You know, uh, uh, the sign just isn't enough. Uh, The sign out of the context of these stories is meaningless. But you put the sign and the stories together, and all of a sudden, now I'm not saying it would have made a difference. That would be underestimating my level of stupid at the time. But maybe, right? This morning, we turn our attention to Exodus chapter 20. And it's a part of this series that we've been, we've been doing, Ancient Stories, Contemporary Truth. And the outline of my sermon is very simple. Ten points. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it, this passage almost seems like it doesn't fit in the series, doesn't it? Contemporary stories... I'm sorry, ancient stories, contemporary truth. All, all the other sermons have been based on these, these narratives, these stories with, with plots and conflict and tension and they, you know they build to a climax and then they resolve it. You don't see any of that here. Uh, the Ten Commandments aren't a story. But like that sign on the bottom of Sugarloaf Rock, when you place them in the context of of the story, they make so much more sense. They have teeth. They have meaning. This morning, we're looking at the Ten Commandments, and they're not a story, but they're a part of this overall story, this great big drama that is unfolding in the Old Testament. And if we see, if we fail to see how the law connects with what precedes it, and connects with what comes after it, we're bound to misunderstand their significance. In fact, that's led to some monumental errors. Errors that, that threaten the very nature of the gospel and distort Christian living significantly. See, our, our adversary has always tried to make God's law seem arbitrary or capricious. But when you place God's law, these, these commandments which sum up so beautifully God's will for us, when you place those in the context of the story, you see they are not arbitrary. They are not capricious at all. This morning there's just really two big questions that I want us to wrestle with. First, how does the law summed up in these Ten Commandments, fit into Israel's story? And then second, how how does the law, these Ten Commandments, fit into our story as the New Testament people of God, the people of God who are in Christ Jesus? So first, how do they fit? How does the law fit into Israel's story? Well, In part, you have to see that they fit into this framework of the covenant. Now, covenant's not a word that we use very often nowadays, is it? I mean, maybe in a marriage ceremony it might come up, but it was an incredibly important word and idea in the ancient Near East. It was so important that the word shows up more than 250 times in the Bible. So what is it? What's a covenant? Covenant? Well, basically, it's a relationship between two parties that is initiated by by the greater of those two parties, and the terms include, at the center, loyalty, and there are obligations that both parties take on themselves. So, for example, a king might enter into, initiate a covenant with his vassals in his kingdom, in his land. The king and the vassals would would pledge loyalty to one another. The vassals would say, we won't go and serve any other king. And the king would pledge. He would oblige himself to protect and care for the vassals. And the vassals, the people in his kingdom would say, we will respond with taxes. We will serve in your army. We will, and on and on and on. Well, the idea of covenant is incredibly important for, for Israel. They are defined by covenant. Here as they're standing at the, the foot of Mount Sinai and they're hearing the Ten Commandments from the voice of God, this is part of a, a covenant ceremony that they are participating in. But it's not the first covenant that is important for Israel. If you rewind history, some 400, 450 years, God had entered into a covenant with a man named Abraham. Abraham becomes the father of this nation, Israel. God had come to Abraham while he was living in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans and said, Abraham, I'm choosing you. I'm making a covenant with you. I am going to make you into a great nation I will give you a posterity that outnumbers the stars in the sky. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to the nations. Now that covenant came with certain obligations. God said, get up and go, and Abraham was expected to obey. Out of faith, he stepped out and went to the land that God was going to show him and eventually give him and his descendants God also said, you and all the male members of your household, children and servants alike, must be circumcised. It was faith being lived out in obedience. And then you come to that ultimate test of Abraham's faith and obedience. When God says, take your son, that son that I promised you, your only son whom you love, take him up to the mountain and sacrifice him there. And Abraham's faith was so resolute, so strong, he obeys. And we realize it's a test. Uh, God's the one who provides the lamb. But here the people are at Mount Sinai, about to enter into a covenant. And it's not a covenant that replaces and and sweeps God's promises to Abraham away. It, It rounds them out, it it gives them more detail, it it fills them out, it it builds upon God's covenant with Abraham. With Abraham, faith was important, it was central. Abraham, you must believe and trust me and you will show that in obedience. Here we see more in more detail what that obedience is going to look like for the people of God, Israel. Faith was still central. Faith was still important. They must believe and display their faith in obedience. But what you have to see here is that covenant, this relationship in which the two are bound together in loyalty, that's bigger than the small idea of law. Law is important, but covenant is bigger than that. Relationship is bigger than, than the rules set out in it. We know this from our own experience, right? If you were to come into my house, you'd, you'd probably walk into the middle of a football game being played in our living room. I mean, my kids are always playing football or, or baseball in the house, but we do have rules. You know, it might not look like we have them, but we do. When they tackle each other, They can't tackle each other onto the couch. You know, we don't care if you get rug burned. We don't care if you break a bone. Just don't break the couch. And don't bleed on the couch, you know. (laughs) So we do have rules. They're rather Spartan rules. I, I understand that. But we do have them. But none of you would think that those rules establish or define my relationship with my kids, right? They were my son's apart from those rules. They're still my sons when they break the rules. The rules don't define our relationship. So it is with the the law. It didn't establish Israel's relationship with God. That predated, preceded the law by hundreds of years. And it doesn't entirely define the relationship either. You could say it it defines the contours of of love and what love is going to look like in the relationship. Uh, But the relationship is central. God says, if you love me, you won't worship any other gods. If you love me, you won't misrepresent me by, by creating images that don't represent me adequately at all. You won't blaspheme misuse my name you won't profane my sabbath if you love each other like i'm calling you to you won't steal from one another you'll honor your father and mother you you won't lie and bear false witness you certainly won't murder or steal your partner's or your neighbor's spouse you won't covet one another and what you have the relationship is bigger the rules the law is a part of that but it doesn't define the entirety of the relationship. You have to see the law in the framework of the covenant. And you have to see it as a part of the landscape of God's redeeming grace. The covenants that they are about to enter into, which the law is a significant part of that, the covenant is based In grace. I mean, just the very first words of chapter 20, and God spoke, indicate that. Israel is a collection of needy, sinful human beings, and God spoke to them. Uh, God is in relationship with them, God is binding Himself to them. How do you explain that? Only by grace. By grace. Even if you don't see grace in all the specific commands here, the whole covenant, the whole law is established in grace. The part of the Ten Commandments that usually doesn't show up on monuments is verse 2. And I would say it's probably the most important part of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. We're bound together. I am your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What God is saying here is, I have done so much for you. I have been so gracious to you. I heard your cry when you were in Egypt, and I remembered my gracious promises to Abraham, your forefather. And out of grace, I came. Out of grace, I saved you from that horrible death plague through the blood on the doorpost. By grace, I brought you out of Egypt, I guided you with a pillar fire and the cloud. I provided for you. I carried you across the Red Sea on dry ground. I saved you. I delivered you. I redeemed you. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. Now, after all this grace, respond in obedience. Obedience is the proper response to grace All the time. It was true for Israel and it's true for us. This relationship, this covenant is grounded in grace and I'd say it's permeated with grace. It's not as if grace got Israel this far and now it's all up to them. When you read the covenant, when you read the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, you see how much. Grace is infused into this whole relationship. God gave them commands and expected them to obey, but he knew they'd fail. And so you have these sacrifices. You have this day of atonement when the people and even the priests would come together and confess their sins, and their sins would be covered by the sacrifices. Grace is all over the place in the Old Testament, even in the law. You you don't understand the law unless you see it against the landscape of God's redeeming grace and in that framework of covenant. You also don't understand the law unless you see it as part of the flow of God's mission in the world. God has a purpose for his community, a purpose for his people, Israel, and the law serves to shape them for that purpose. The purpose of any community dictates what appropriate is, what behavior is appropriate in that community, doesn't it? I mean, think about a football team. A football team exists for one main purpose, right? To win games and ultimately to win a championship. That goal dictates what kind of behavior is acceptable on that football team. So, for example, showing up to training camp really out of shape its not acceptable. You'll be fined. Uh, going out and, and partying the night before a football game is not acceptable. You'll be fined. And in the case of Des Bryant, you'll have a babysitter appointed for you to make sure you don't go out partying the night before big games. It's not appropriate behavior given the goal of the community. Well, Israel was a community that was created for a goal. We often say that God has a mission for his people. I think it's backwards. God has a people for his mission. God's mission Precedes his people. He creates his people for a purpose. You see this all the way back when God calls Abraham. In Genesis chapter 18, God affirms his relationship with Abraham and says, You are going to have a son. You are. It's going to happen. He will be the heir to these great promises. And then God says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Referring to what he's about to do to Sodom. So shall I hide from him what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. See that? That's the mission. That's the purpose. I'm creating in Abraham a community, and I'll bless him, and through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's the goal. But God continues For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. The purpose be a blessing to the nations that dictates what behavior is appropriate Abraham because that's your goal because that's your mission you have to teach your children and your household to keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness to do justice if you are to be that light to the world you have to stand out you have to be a holy nation See, the law that we read, the the Ten Commandments, is a codification for Abraham's children of what the way of the Lord, of what righteousness and justice will look like. Their mission was to be a beacon. And God says, here, this is how you will do it. Obey. So the framework is covenant. The landscape is grace. And the mission is incredibly important to understanding the law. But how has this changed for us? We're we're the people of God in Christ. And we understand instinctively that everything has changed because of the person of Jesus Christ. Because of who he is and what he has done for us and on our behalf. Everything has been transformed by the reality of Jesus Christ. So how are we, as the New Testament people of God, to relate to the law? Well, let's think about it in those same three terms, covenant, grace, and mission. Certainly, Christ comes and he institutes a new covenant for us, but only after fulfilling the old Jesus steps into history, and and though he's the Lord of the law, he becomes for us the perfect servant of the law. He shows us that the law is good. The law is good. It's just that people didn't have it within themselves to obey it. Israel throughout the whole of the Old Testament, is shown to be an unfaithful servant of the covenant, an unfaithful servant of the Lord. Even under great threat, they couldn't, they wouldn't keep the terms of the covenant. The thing that they held most dear was the land and their identity as a nation under God. And God says, if you don't keep the covenant, if you are unfaithful, I'll take it away. And even that great threat couldn't motivate their obedience. You you think it should have been easy. I mean, after all, we're created in the image of God. We have his image stamped upon us indelibly. And Israel knew God had told them expressly what his will was. And they still couldn't do it. Because the image has been radically twisted. And sin has darkened our hearts. So the law shows that we have need of a a radical, radical solution. Law and sacrifices kept sin in check. But that's not good enough. Christ comes not to keep it in check, but to kill it. And to suck out its deadly poison. And so he places himself under the law to fulfill all the law's demands for us. Not for himself, for us and all those who are in him. And only then does he institute a new covenant. On the night that Jesus was betrayed He took bread and he took a cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. But just like the Mosaic covenant didn't totally sweep aside the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant with Abraham, so this doesn't totally sweep aside. It builds upon what God was doing with Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 31, God says, I'm creating a new covenant for you. It's not going to be like the old that was so broken and powerless It's a new covenant, but it's still a covenant. It still comes with obligations and responsibilities. Abraham, your responsibility is to trust me and obey. Israel, your responsibility is to trust me and obey. Here's how. People of the church, your obligation is to trust the Lord Jesus Christ and obey. After all, the God that was thundering at Mount Sinai is the same God that was revealed in Jesus Christ. His holy character hasn't changed one iota. He is still holy God. The law reveals his holy heart. And it is still a good guide as we strive to live holy lives. Oh, there certainly is discontinuity between the old and the new. It is a new covenant because it comes with power that the old covenant didn't have. The old covenant, the law, was accompanied with great promises and threats that didn't motivate obedience. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he ascends to the right hand of God the Father and he says, I am sending to you the Spirit. And the Spirit's work is to write God's law, according to Jeremiah, to write his law on our hearts. What law? The law. He reveals at Sinai. It hasn't changed. The law still reflects the holy character of God, and the Spirit presses that upon our hearts as he conforms us to the image of Jesus Christ. How does this apply? How does it change anything that we do? I know we talk a lot about staying in step with the Spirit. Most of the time, what we have in mind is as the Spirit guides us in, in big decisions in our life. Like who to marry, where to go to school, careers, houses, retirement. And that's Wonderful. Pray, ask the Spirit to guide. But don't neglect how the Spirit is guiding you in obedience. How He's pressing the law upon your heart. Walking in step with the Spirit means first and foremost obedience to the will of God. So covenant still matters. We are people of the new covenant with obligations. And grace is still the proper motivation for obedience. In the Old Testament, sacrifices reflected the the grace of God. Obedience wouldn't be perfect, but people could find mercy and grace through the institution of the sacrifices. But in Christ, we have a more perfect sacrifice. Christ, the Lord of the covenant, becomes a sacrifice, takes on the curses of those who broke the covenant, We have experienced levels of grace that the Old Testament saints could only imagine. They had sacrifices. We have the Son of God laying down his life for us. Have we experienced more or less grace than Israel? If more, how much more sincere and diligent should our obedience be in response to that great grace? We don't sing, okay, grace, how sweet the sound. It's amazing grace, how sweet the sound. In response to that grace, we ought to obey. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, said, When I thought that God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smite upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against the one who loved me so and sought my good. I remember in elementary school, I had two principals at the, the Christian school I was at. Not at the same time. They didn't need that much discipline, but the first one, just to be honest, was a mean cuss. <laughs> uh, I broke rules just to spite him. I knew I was going to get punished, but I didn't like him. He didn't like me. He was mean. And my way of getting at him was to break more rules. The next principal, Mr. Turode, a Wonderful guy. I mean, I still broke rules. But when I'd go to his office and he'd sit and talk, I honestly felt worse because he was such a nice guy. I felt worse that I was disappointing him than about the paddle that was coming. His grace made me want to obey. His kindness motivated imperfect obedience, but obedience. We experience the grace of God daily in our lives. And it compels us at least to strive for obedience. Yes, we're still sinful, fallen people, and we will sin. But we go back to the foot of the cross and we find more grace. And that deeper expression, that deeper encounter with God's grace, compels better obedience doesn't become a license to sin. It fuels the engine of gratitude that drives our obedience further. And that obedience is enabled and motivated by grace. So we just keep going deeper and deeper into debt to God's grace. And that's exactly how it's supposed to be. Grace still ought to motivate obedience. Obedience. And as we're caught up in the mission of God, obedience becomes obedience to the law, becomes all the more important. The mission of God is now seen in light of Jesus Christ. It was of Him that God was referring when He said, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. Through Jesus, who comes through your line, all the nations of the earth will be blessed here on this side of the cross God's mission hasn't really changed we have more details but he still has a cosmic redemptive mission and he has chosen to include us in that what a privilege what a responsibility just like Old Testament Israel was saved from slavery and saved for a purpose to be a light to the nations so we have been saved from the dominion of of Satan, and from sin and death, so that we might be a light to the nations. We have been saved for a mission, saved for obedience and holiness. God's law shapes us, informs us, and fits us for that purpose. Peter picking up on so many Old Testament themes, said God is creating us, he's shaping us, forming us to be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation. The law is a good guide in that. It reveals the holy will of God. Now if we're honest, conformity to the moral will of God, obedience to our king is going to look increasingly odd as our culture moves away from its Judeo-Christian heritage, won't it? Obedience is going to stand out in bold relief as Christendom kind of deteriorates and crumbles. And we can complain about it or we can see it as a wonderful opportunity as the world around us As the culture around us moves away from its Judeo Christian moorings, our obedience to the King, our obedience to His will, is going to stand out. It's going to make us look odd, but it's going to shine the light on God's holy character, on God's righteousness. Obedience to the will of God is a way of life for his people. Don't make the mistake of ever thinking it's a way to life. No, no. But it is a way of life. It would be a a horrible misunderstanding of this passage of my sermon to walk away thinking you just need to try harder and obey better and then you'll be accepted by God. The solution is far more radical than that. The law has exposed how deep our sin problem goes. Behavioral modification isn't the answer. Now, Jesus has offered a more radical solution. Put your faith in Him, be united to Him. He's taken the curses of disobedience on Himself. He's fulfilled all the demands of the law on your behalf. And he gives us a new us when we're united to him. He recreates us. And so we go out committed to the law of the Lord, not to gain life, but as a wonderful, blessed, grace-filled way of life. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for your law. We can affirm what the psalmist says, that your law is perfect, it's more valuable than gold, even pure gold. It's sweet on our lips. Father, we pray that you would help us as our hearts desire to obey, help us to do so through the power of your Spirit and to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ.